You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. So we are joined today by author Stephen Dando Collins. Uh, who is an award-winning Australian author uh, and novelist. Uh, we are uh, joined in a, in a very interesting way, remotely. Uh, Stephen is in Australia, and actually we are recording this in the afternoon in Washington, D.C., and it is tomorrow morning in Australia. So this is the first time that SpyCast has defied the space-time continuum, so we're pretty happy about that. Yay, technology. Uh, but Stephen is a, uh, an author, novelist, books on ancient history, American history, British history, Australian history, and French history. Uh, and in 2012, he actually launched the critically acclaimed Caesar the War Dog series of children's novels based on the true stories of modern-day military dogs serving in Afghanistan and elsewhere. He is a prolific writer, to say the least. He has published over 20 books, the most recent of which we will talk about today. Operation Chow Hound, the most risky, most glorious U.S. bomber mission of World War II. So, Stephen, I, I thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Um, I've read many, many books on World War II. My primary research also centers on the war. And I have to say I've heard bits and pieces about this operation, but I've never seen such a complete telling of this very interesting story, which, for those who don't know, at its heart is really a story of a humanitarian mission at the very end of the war to feed thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of starving Dutch civilians. On its face, the book is a great military history story with compelling personalities, and, and certainly many of the usual suspects, Eisenhower, Montgomery, Beetle Smith, but I was surprised to see some interesting celebrities pop up throughout the book, from Walter Cronkite to Ian Fleming to Audrey Hepburn. My first question for you is, what brought you to this topic? I mean, there have been almost an unquantifiable number of books about World War II, and as important a story as this is, it's really fell through the cracks. How did you stumble upon it? I've known this story for many years, and as with many of the books I write, I, uh, I find a subject that interests me, I research it, and I wait for somebody else to write the book, uh, <laughs> thinking that there must be surely someone out there better qualified than me to, to tell the story. And um, as the year went by and the 70th anniversary of uh, Operation Chow Hand uh, uh, approached, it is the 70th anniversary this year, in April, May, 
Um, uh, if it occurs to me in a book, I don't write it, perhaps nobody will. Um, as you say, there have been uh, uh, books out there in Holland um, about these events, but uh, they've really gone under the radar in, uh, in the US uh, and uh, Australia. Um, uh, it's a little better known in Britain, uh, but they tend to focus on the, on the British uh, efforts. And uh, I found that in the US, it was um, particularly in, in the mainstream, unknown, now, particularly the fact that if it had not been for the, uh, uh, the American uh, military and political leaders, um, these operations uh, probably would not have taken place. And it's not as though some well, little-known American unit was involved. We're talking the 8th Air Force. We're talking Jimmy Doolittle's group here. I mean, this is a, a major operation run by people that anyone who studies World War II would know. And it's amazing that it's just never been told this way. This is the amazing thing. The amazing thing, as you say, um, tens of thousands of U.S. personnel involved and uh, up to... Uh, uh, more than 400 uh, B-17 bombers flying a day and every day. Um, and uh, yeah, in my research, I found that often aircrew were saying, this is the best thing we did during the war. For a change, we were doing something good. We were not killing people. We were actually preserving lives. And uh, so, again, I was amazed that the story had not been broadly told. It's very well known in, in the veterans groups, in the various uh, bomb group associations, the uh, you know, it's, it's, it's well covered, uh, but again, it, it, in the mainstream, it's uh, this wonderful story of you know, a good deed done by uh, the American uh, people. It was just, just, just gone unnoticed. There's so many great personalities in this book, and you do a great job in really bringing these characters to life. There really isn't a main character in this book, but if I had to pick one, it might be Prince Bernhard. Uh, in the second chapter of the book, you introduce him. The title of the chapter is Hitler's Secret Agent. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Prince Bernard uh, was uh, a German prince uh, from a, a, a disinherited German house. Uh, they had the name uh, and, and he was a very uh, And uh, he uh, met and fell in love with uh, uh, the Crown Princess of Holland, in 1936 at the, at the Winter Olympics. And uh, uh, his uh, uh, suit, black, was uh, well received by the Queen, oh, Queen, uh, Queen Wilhelmina. He was a Protestant, like uh, the, the Dutch royals. He, he came from a royal house. And uh, she approved the, the match. So Juliana and, uh, and uh, Bernard uh, married in 1937. Uh, when he came to Holland, he disavowed his, uh, his German background, uh, took Dutch citizenship, and uh, uh, spoke Dutch in public all the time and became very popular. He told the Queen and his bride that he had been uh, a, a member of the, uh, the uh, writer SS, the uh, SS cavalry, which was basically, he said, just an excuse to play with, uh, with powerful cars. He always had an interest with fast cars throughout his life. And, uh, but he said, apart from that, he had no connections with the Nazis. He said, said it, it helped him get through his, his uh, university to, to have this connection uh, with the SS. And so uh, this was accepted as, uh, you know, as nothing uh, too, uh, too evil. Uh, and in fact, after the war, uh, the, the Allies found that the, uh, the Rider SS was 
nothing more than a social club, and it was, it was not actually classified as an illegal organisation, as the uh, SS itself was. However, uh, researchers uh, in Holland uh, in recent times have found that uh, he was telling one or two porkies. Right. <laughs> he had certainly been a member of the Nazi party, having checked down his membership details. Uh, he'd been a member of the FA. Uh, he, uh, uh, Which is the brown shirts. The brown shirts. And uh, uh, after uh, he graduated from the university in Berlin, he was employed by IG Farben. And uh, they sent him to Paris. Uh, and he worked from their office as a salesman, and a very successful salesman, by the way. Uh, and uh, there was a report after the war done by uh, General Eisenhower's uh, political uh, economic office. And uh, it reported that IG Farben uh, had a massive influence on uh, the German military and that, that even made the statement that without IG Farben there would not have been a Second World War. So, so this was partly because of their industrial might. Uh, they were involved in, uh, in a whole range of uh, different activities, particularly in the chemical area. But they had set up, IG Farben had set up a spy network uh, which were ran throughout its offices uh, around the world. And its uh, uh, employees, particularly its salesmen around the world, were required to submit monthly uh, intelligence reports about everything from uh, the locations of uh, airfields and uh, aircraft factories, uh, shipping movements, the political machinations in, in various parts of, of the world and so on. Uh, there was nothing to, to prove that uh, Prince Bernard had been a uh, uh, one of these five, nothing to disprove it either. Right. And uh, it, it is very likely that he was one of these uh, uh, agents submitting, submitting monthly reports uh, over above their, their normal work. Well, some people may be listening to this thinking, well, you know, yeah, he's doing economic espionage for a private company. But of course, in Nazi Germany under fascism, the companies and the government were so closely collaborative that essentially he's working for the German government at this point. Exactly. The reports went to the German high command uh, from IG Farben. So uh, it, it, it wasn't purely economic. It was uh, yeah, very uh, military based. Well, Bernard, the prince would eventually make his way to England. I think this is where uh, the story is very interesting because he gets to England uh, and the English aren't sure what to make of him. And so they ask one of their own intelligence people to vet the prince, and of course, that's none other than Ian Fleming. Yes, Commander Ian, Ian Fleming, he was, uh, interestingly, he's a character he created a decade two later, he was also a commander in the, in the Royal Navy. Uh, and uh, Fleming uh, worked for military intelligence and uh, was uh, much respected uh, by Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And uh, he had the job of getting to know the uh, the Europeans, the exiled Europeans in uh, in uh, the UK, and uh, in, in part of this, he befriended Prince Bernard. Uh, they often went to, to lunch together at the Castle Grill. Uh, um, I recount in the book uh, a particular dinner party uh, where they uh, find themselves uh, in the middle of an air raid. And Fleming, being Fleming, he was a very suave gentleman and. Uh, uh, decided that they, that they needn't bother to go down to the air raid shuttle, they'd continue with the dinner. 
and uh, it was said that a very small and select German bomb landed on their very small and select uh, dinner party, and it, uh, it destroyed the, uh, the stairway uh, to the uh, upper story apartment where they were having this dinner. And uh, uh, Prince Bernard, who was a tall, uh, well-built chappy, uh, uh, managed to uh, drop down to the, the ground below and then looked up and said, said to the others, oh, thank you for a very pleasant evening. <laughs> And uh, and went home, and Fleming did the same as Duff and Sorbonne and drove home. So they knew each other well, even to the point that uh, Fleming knew that uh, Bernard's favourite drink was a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. So I wonder if that had any influence on uh, James Bond's favourite too. Uh, so as I say, they knew each other well, and uh, uh, Churchill in particular uh, suspected. Uh, Prince Bernard's loyalties. Uh, he was uh, a, uh, now a Dutch prince living in exile uh, in uh, England with, with uh, the Queen, Queen Wilhelmina, his mother-in-law. Uh, but they, they knew he, he was German-born. His brother, his younger brother, was uh, serving in the German military. And uh, so uh, Churchill was very reluctant when Queen Wilhelmina appointed uh, Bernard to uh, commander of all Dutch forces, including the Dutch resistance. And uh, Churchill uh, asked uh, Fleming to give a, a security clearance, uh, and he did. He, he gave them uh, uh, yeah, the all clear, saying that as far as he concerned, he could be trusted fully. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Bernard gets put in charge of the Dutch forces, and more, most importantly for our purposes, this includes what they call the Dutch forces of the interior. I'm not going to try to pronounce the the two words start with B and S, uh, but really it's the Dutch resistance, and and really. Uh, by, this gives him clearance, I, I want to say at the highest levels, but not necessarily because, of course, he doesn't get told about arguably the most important mission of the war before Chowhound about Holland, and that's Market Garden, uh, which plays a pretty vital role in the book. Um, Bernard, of course, was passing along all the information he was getting from the Dutch resistance to General Montgomery and the people planning Market Garden. It wasn't a two-way street, though, was it? Uh, it, was, it was interesting that they excluded Bernard, but they also excluded uh, uh, information that was coming from Holland, right. uh, intelligence information, which would told them, told the Allies that uh, there were two German uh, uh, Panzer units, SF Panzer units, resting in the very area that they were planning to make this huge parachute drop in the Arm area, and they ignored this. One of the reasons that they uh, mistrusted intelligence coming out of Holland at that time is that they had learned in 1944 that the entire British SOE operation in Holland had been compromised by the Germans, SOE being Special Operations Executive. This was the, the, the British uh, OAS, if you like. Uh, their job was to uh, uh, assist the, uh, the resistance, uh, sending in agents and uh, uh, equipment and uh, uh, sabotage work in, in Holland and so on. And from 1942, the uh, the Abwehr's uh, Department 3F had uh, captured a, a leading agent sent across by SOE to Holland, had turned him, and thereafter every agent that the, that the British sent to Holland was captured uh, by the Germans and was either turned and uh, was forced to work for the Germans or was put up against the wall and shot. Which went worked the other way too. Any, any German agents caught in Britain were given the same uh, options. So it was, Quid pro quo, and um, and it was not until 1944 that it was discovered that the uh, uh, the Abwehr had been 
uh, sending false information from Holland uh, for years. Right. And it was interesting that there was a, a British cryptographer at uh, Leopold Marx working in uh, SOE who had uh, very serious suspicions about the, the, uh, the messages coming out of Holland. Uh, he found there was not a single mistake for two years in uh, the uh, radio messages coming from the agents. Uh, as we know now, they were turned agents, and he suspected that that was the case. And the, re the reason he was suspicious was because uh, the messages sent by uh, the SOE agents in Europe had to be very short uh, because uh, the Germans were, were, were adept at uh, uh, tracking down the transmitters. Right, triangulation, yeah. And uh, invariably, because they were rushing the messages, there often would be a mistake or two in the message. Yet for two years, not a single mistake, there were hundreds of messages coming out of Holland. And uh, so Marx uh, went to the, the head of the, the Dutch department uh, of SOE and, and, and passed on his suspicions, and they totally ignored it. Rubbish, rubbish. Uh, so uh, this was this went on for until 1944, when they finally realised that uh, Major Herman Giskus, the uh, the head of uh, uh, the were in uh, in Holland, actually sent them uh, an open message saying, "Please send more agents. <laughs> be, be pleased to make them welcome." <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's I mean that's an exceptional piece of intelligence analysis by by the British cryptographer. I, I, unfortunately, it was ignored. But you even write about this group called the Confidential Counselors. Uh, who had been so uh, infiltrated by the Germans, uh, and the Germans so enjoyed fooling London, they actually gave it a name. Uh, you know, the, their, the England game, the, uh, the, the ability to send disinformation and to, to mess with the English. I, I thought that was very fascinating, what you wrote in the book there. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, they, they taught the game, uh, England's for you, and uh, they uh, had, had a great time, uh, and, and particularly making up all this... Uh, uh, um, false information. It, you talk, talked about ignoring, uh, Montgomery ignoring resistance intelligence about German forces. There's also imagery intelligence that were, what showed that these forces were actually on the ground in the areas of Market Garden around uh, Arnhem and Eindhoven. Uh, why, why is Montgomery so intent on ignoring intelligence that was just hitting him in the face? I mean, Imagery intelligence has nothing to do with the Dutch resistance or, or the Abwehr infiltrating it. What, why is this intelligence ignored by Montgomery? Well, Montgomery was a very arrogant gentleman. Uh, uh, he actually went to school in the, the very place uh, that I'm talking about, Tasmania. Huh. Uh, believe it or not, his father was the, the uh, official of Tasmania. He went to school in Hobart, Tasmania. But, but uh, he turned out to be uh, very arrogant and pig-headed. Uh, and uh, this information that was coming in went against his plans, and uh, he didn't like that at all. Even uh, General Peter uh, Smith, uh, uh, Eisenhower's chief of staff, was, uh, became aware of this information, and he went to uh, Montgomery uh, and uh, produced, put the information in front of him and uh, said, uh, well, you now rethink the plan, or at least uh, there was another airborne division being held in reserve, and uh, it would be at least add that to the, to the plan to, to, to counter what looked to be and uh, uh, units on the ground. And Montgomery uh, just shook his head and uh, said, uh, yeah, nonsense, nonsense. And one of his, uh, his uh, subordinate generals, his intelligence officer had come to him with these aerial photographs 
uh, and uh, for his troubles, he was sent on uh, extended uh, sick leave. Uh, they just didn't want to know. Uh, it went against their plan. So, Market Garden fails. It's a bold plan. It's it, the bridge too far. Uh, it almost opened up Germany to a very early end of the war, uh, but it, it's not unsuccessful. And that's really where the the theme of this book picks up. Really talking post Market Garden because there was severe retribution against the Dutch population after Market Garden, and this really you know contributes to the severe food shortages that really threatens to to kill tens if not hundreds of thousands of, of Dutch citizens. And that's where Operation Challenge Howland comes into play. Am I right? Exactly. Uh, at this time, uh, there were three and a half million uh, Dutch civilians in Western Holland still under uh, occupied German control. There were 120,000 uh, German troops in uh, Western Holland, including the, the, the Rock FF. Uh, and uh, uh, I tell the story of Mark Garden briefly in the book, so to, to create the context for, for, for what followed, as you say, this retribution. And uh, the Germans uh, had enough food to last uh, six or eight months, uh, but uh, they now tightened up uh, all the food supplies. They cut off the power to uh, to uh, major cities in Western Holland. In wintertime. In wintertime. Yeah. Uh, they also forbid the locals to chop down trees, so yeah, to light their fires. Uh, and they even pack up the uh, the, uh, the trolley car system uh, in the, the major cities and send them off to Germany to the the, the, the bombed German cities. Um, they were never used; they were often not found uh, in storage after the war. Uh, and so the uh, the, German, the Dutch people came to call the, the winter of 1944-45 the Hunger Winter. And if you talk to Dutch people today, uh, their eyes immediately light up when you mention this because it's ingrained into Dutch history, the hunger winter. Uh, and uh, uh, particularly in the cities, uh, the, the population began to suffer. In the country, the farmers were still able to uh, you know, use their own produce. But uh, in the cities, uh, uh, the, the population was, uh, was literally starved. So I, I don't want to give away too much of the plot of the book because I want people to actually read it. Uh, I want them to go buy it. Um, and uh, to really appreciate this mission for themselves, but just to give a little bit of background, essentially what this mission is, is it turns American and British bomber forces that had just spent the last year and a half flattening Germany into food delivery vehicles, uh, dropping thousands and thousands of tons of food all over the Dutch countryside, while the Germans still control Holland. Yes, in the face of these 120,000 German troops, how, how are they going to do this? You mentioned uh, uh, how uh, the uh, confidential councils um, in, in, uh, had been compromised along with the, the other uh, resistance uh, leaders in Holland. And Dr. Uh, Arthur C. Sinqua, the, the Nazi governor of Holland, uh, sends an invitation out to uh, several of these confidential councillors. These are the, the um, secret uh, representatives of, the, of the, the Dutch government in Holland. Invite them to meetings. Uh, and uh, informs them that um, he knows all about their uh, their uh, secret uh, operations. He can even have a copy of what they call their confidential manifesto, uh, and um, with a smile tells them that uh, uh, he's fully aware of what they're doing, but he wants to help the Dutch people. 
sitting quiet, had decided that he uh, wanted to look after himself with the, war, the end of the war approaching, and uh, decided that uh, if he did a good deed, it might uh, count well at any uh, future war, uh, war crimes trial. And uh, he uh, gets them to make contact with London to say that the, the German authorities could be amenable to some sort of plan to feed the Dutch. Uh, so while you've got, to, the, on the other side, you've got Queen Wilhelmina imploring Churchill and uh, uh, President uh, uh, Roosevelt uh, to help her people, uh, you've got, on the other side, uh, seeking quite, uh, uh, making moves to, to accommodate this. The, the German military are not so keen. They've got orders from uh, Hitler to fight to the last man. They're calling, they're calling on Fortress Holland. And uh, so they're not uh, very pleased about uh, what Sitting Park is up to. But, but eventually there are secret negotiations that uh, take place in Ackerville in, uh, in uh, Southern Holland, uh, where General Beadle Smith's uh, chief planner, Andrew Geddes, of the Royal Air Force, Air Commodore Andrew Geddes, uh, he's given less than two weeks to come up with this plan, which then has to be put to the Germans. And the plan is we will drop food. Uh, daily to the Dutch, but they know they don't have enough transport aircraft. They certainly don't have enough parachutes. How are we going to do it? Well, Geddes had been one of the planners for the, the D-Day air operations, uh, and he decided, okay, uh, the the major bombing operations have come to an end. We've run out of targets. Uh, let's use the bombers. We'll use uh, American B-17s and the British Lancasters. Uh, but how are we going to get the, the food to the, the Dutch on the ground? The, the aircraft certainly can't land. No, that's too great a risk. Uh, well, let's put the food in the bomb bays and they'll just drop it in the bomb bays. So they, they conduct tests and they find that anything uh, dropped uh, from higher than uh, 400 feet is likely to break on landing. So the aircraft are told to, uh, they've got to fly in low and they've got to drop their loads from about three to 400 feet. And uh, so, Two uh, Lancasters are sent on a trial run, uh, even before any uh, agreement has been finalised with the Germans. And uh, uh, even though one of the Lancasters, flown by an Australian, uh, hits the, the water, as well as propellers hits the water, uh, they fly so low over the North Sea, they successfully make props uh, at a racetrack and uh, come back and report all is good. Meanwhile, the negotiations are still going on with the Germans, and we only have the, uh, the, the their verbal word that they won't uh, fire on these aircraft flying so low uh, that, that any, you know, any uh, shell hitting them is likely to bring them down. Well, you wouldn't even need an anti-aircraft shell at that point. You're flying so low that a German soldier with a with a Luger on the ground could potentially cause some damage if he decides to fire at one of these aircraft. Exactly, and later, about two later, one of these uh, two. Guinea pig aircraft, which is flown by a Canadian, um, they find a, 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 a Luger bullet, a hole from a Luger, uh, 9mm in the fuselage. Uh, so some town officer had to find them that flown out of here. So um, there is this risk that the Germans will fly. In uh, Geddes, the, the British commander, is very famously said that this was as important operation as D Day. Exactly, and he should have known because he's been one of the, uh, the planners for Fedita. Uh, but yet, that, he had a year to plan Fedita, and he had less than two weeks to bring this together. Uh, the Dutch people um, 
been called him well, they say uh, he's known in Hong as the miracle worker. There is a, a monument to him, a walking track to get us far. Um, but uh, uh, bringing this together so quickly was, was you know, quite miraculous. So I want to ask you two two separate questions, and then we'll wrap this up. One one is, and this is more of an opinion question than anything else. The the German governor, the the, the political commander on the ground, who we had just finished talking about, he has uh, at least the hope that allowing the Americans and the British to drop food to the Dutch civilians will get him out of trouble after the war is over. Uh, so not to give away the ending, this doesn't work out so well. Uh, he is executed along with many of the other Nazi commanders. Would you say this is unfair because of his role in feeding all these Dutch civilians, or is this just? This is really a case of a mass murderer uh, making a token, doing a good, token good deed uh, at the end of his, his career. It doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, uh, shouldn't uh, prevent him being uh, tried and convicted of his earlier crimes. He, he claimed that he had tried to mitigate the, uh, the uh, number of Dutch Jews being transported away to the concentration camps uh, and so on. But he, that had happened under his watch. Uh, it was under his watch that uh, Anne Frank and her family had been uh, captured and sent off to the concentration camps. Um, so, no, I, I, it was wishful thinking on his part. Right. That it, 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 at the end, uh, he could uh, he could weasel out of, uh, of his uh, and get away with his uh, earlier crimes. So, there, there are a couple of relative, relatively well-known personalities that pop up throughout this book that have bit parts or even some more important parts, certainly Walter Cronkite, but Farley Moat, who some Canadians may know as a Canadian author and environmentalist, uh, and of course, Audrey Hepburn, who actually plays a pretty significant role, at least as a bystander in this operation. Um, are, are there any of those people? I mean, Moat, to me, is fascinating because he, he carries out, or at least is, is party to a mission behind enemy lines that almost screws the whole thing up. Um, but of course, he's responsible for technical intelligence, uh, discovering what the Germans had been cooking up when it comes to special weapons. But Hepburn, for anyone who's lived uh, over the age of, I don't know, even kids may know who Audrey Hepburn is here in the United States. Uh, her whole life is really you know, uh, shaped by this adventure uh, of almost starving to death and then being rescued by this mission. Yes, uh, people would realize uh, that she was there in Holland during the war. Uh, her, her mother was a uh, Dutch baroness uh, and uh, they'd been living in England, just she and her mother, the mother just prior to the war, and her mother decided that if we go back to Holland, we'll be safe there because during the First World War, Holland had been neutral and the Germans had not invaded. Um, it was turned out to be a bad decision because the Germans did invade Holland in the Second World War. Um, so uh, she's uh, in 1945, she's 15, uh, Audrey, uh, and uh, they actually lived in Arnhem and had moved from Arnhem. Uh, to a village called Bill, just three or four miles uh, to the north, uh, and uh, were there during the uh, uh, the Battle of Arm, uh, during the Market Garden, and uh, thinking they'd be safe there. Uh, but uh, one of the German Panzer divisions actually based its headquarters in the village of Bill, was right in the middle of the battle. Uh, and uh, the, the, the city of Arm, after the battle, uh, which the, uh, the Germans won, 
uh, they levelled much of Arnhem and uh, forced the inhabitants, they gave them 24 hours to get out uh, and uh, uh, turned it into a sort of fortress. So a lot of refugees uh, were on the roads and uh, uh, Audrey's grandfather uh, brought 40 of these refugees into, into, their, into his villa with his family. Uh, there wasn't, none, wasn't enough food for people for them, let alone for the refugees. Uh, and Audrey, uh, it was, uh, they were surviving on tulip bowls at, at one point, uh, and she uh, would give her uh, rations off to her mother and would fill up with water just to, to get by. And uh, she said herself after the war that this experience had great impact on her physically and mentally. And, and uh, any fans of Audrey Hepburn would know that she was way for them and uh, uh, throughout her life. And part of this, much of this was to do with this, uh, starvation during the hunger winter. Uh, uh, you mentioned Walter Cronkite. He, he was a young uh, war correspondent during Market Garden and was uh, there in the middle of the fighting. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, Moe, interestingly, as you say, he uh, was a, a technical intelligence officer and his uh, commander, uh, uh, Major Cotton, came to him and said, uh, come on, we're off on a, on a mission. Uh, and it, 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 it's been sanctioned by their superiors, but the superiors obviously didn't realise its ramifications. And they go dashing off from the Canadian lines to German lines and all. Cotton has decided that he's going to go to the German commander, General Blaskovitz, and negotiate a peace. This is while Geddes is trying to negotiate with the same Germans to get them to agree not to shoot at the bombers. Uh, flying uh, operations at Chowhound and Manor. Uh, and uh, uh, I won't give away the, the story, but they very nearly succeed in, in uh, just destroying the, the, all the good work being done at a higher level. It, it's, fa it's fascinating how one or two people, I mean, it really is only one person because Mott is kind of hiding down, hoping that he doesn't get killed because of his commander, uh, can, can undo the work of so many people, or potentially almost undo the work of so many people. Um, the, the author is Stephen Daniel Collins, who's joined us here today. The book is Operation Chowhound, the most risky, most glorious U.S. bomber mission of World War II. I highly recommend it uh, as someone, again, who's read many, many books on World War II. Uh, this is not only a great story that most of you, I guarantee, have never heard of before, but it is interspersed with intelligence stories throughout, uh, even though it itself is a story about feeding civilians. Uh, it is intelligence story at heart. So thank you for taking the time uh, to join us here today, Stephen, um, and we appreciate you joining us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you, Vince. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. 
head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now. <laughs>